all the hill country of Judah and from all the hill country of Israel, Joshua totally destroyed them in their towns. No Anakites were left in Israelite territory. Only in Gaza, Gath, and Ashdod did any survive. So Joshua took the entire land just as the Lord had directed Moses. He gave it as an inheritance to Israel according to their tribal divisions. And then the land had rest from war. Let's, uh, let's pray this, this morning as we uh, share together. Lord, uh, thank you for the word of God that can be the, the lamp to our feet and the light to our pathway that shows us not only the pathway to, to salvation and relationship with you, but it also shows us how to live. And Lord, I pray that as uh, we uh, look into your word today, that the Spirit of God would uh, speak to us. Uh, Lord, take the word of God and uh, encourage our hearts and convict our hearts. And Lord, we just uh, commit these next uh, few minutes to you and uh, pray your blessing on our time together. Uh, Open our eyes. Uh, May we say with uh, Samuel, speak, Lord, for your servant is listening. And we'll give you the thanks in Jesus' name. Amen. We have been looking through the book of Joshua probably for a couple months now and uh, taken chapter by chapter. So we're in chapters 10 and 11 this morning and uh, just a a little bit of a a review of the book of Joshua to get us up to speed. Uh, You remember the book opens that uh, Moses has died. He's been their leader for 40 years But God brings a new leader on the scene, and it's Joshua, Moses' right-hand man. And the charge and the command is to to go in and possess the land. And so the Israelites are facing the Jordan River. It's at flood stage. And you remember, God works a miracle and opens up the Jordan River. Two million Israelites cross on dry ground. They set up camp at Gilgal, and four things happened at Gilgal. Number one, all the males are circumcised. Number two, they observe the Passover for the first time, uh, perhaps since the beginning of the wilderness wanderings. Number three, the manna ceases. Now they're in the land and uh, they can uh, enjoy the crops and the fruit of the land. And number four, Joshua had an encounter, we call it Christophany, with a person who identifies themselves as the commander of Yahweh's army. And we said that was probably Jesus himself. And he speaks words of encouragement to the life of Joshua as they're ready to engage in a very, very tall task. So they cross over. They conquer Jericho. We know that story. Uh, they go confidently into battle number two, Ai, and they suffer defeat. And they find out it's because of one man. Uh, his name was Achan. And God deals with Achan and his family very, very severely. They go to AI 2.0 now and conquer AI. And, and uh, last week we looked at uh, the five kings that kind of came together uh, against uh, the Israelites and uh, Joshua and the nation conquered uh, those five kings. And that really brings us to Joshua chapter, um, last part of chapter 10, verses 11 and 12, which I mentioned are kind of summaries of, of the campaign to conquer Canaan. So this is kind of a, uh, an interlude, a, a summary section in the book of Joshua, uh, and it reviews the campaign. There was a central campaign, a northern campaign, and a southern campaign. And so this morning, uh, we're going to look at four questions about this section of Scripture and what we've looked at. 
And then we're going to look at three application um, life lessons. So that's kind of where we're headed. So it'll be just a little different outline this morning. So let's look at four questions about the book of Joshua. First one is this. Why does the land of Canaan belong to Israel? Uh, this, this whole section of scripture is all about fighting over land, fighting over territory. They're still doing it today, quite frankly. And so the question is, why does the land of Canaan belong to Israel? Now, we refer to that part of the country um, sometimes with different words. We call it Israel. Uh, some people call it the Holy Land. It's, um, <clears throat> it's the Holy Land because that's the place where Jesus walked. I have uh, uh, our niece and her husband um, are on staff at Shadow Mountain Community Church in, uh, in San Diego, California. And for the last 10 days, um, they have uh, been chaperones on a couple hundred people from Shadow Mountain Community Church that went over to Israel and they've been there for like 10 days, so all this week on Facebook, I'm looking at my niece and her husband, and they're showing the Sea of Galilee, here's the holy city, Jerusalem, you know, here's the sepulcher where they laid Jesus. Oh, what an awesome privilege that is. But in the Old Testament, it's also referred to as the promised land, the promised land. Why? Because God promised this land to the Israelites. And that's really the answer to the question, why does the land of Canaan belong to Israel? It's because of the Abrahamic covenant. The Abrahamic covenant that God gave to Abraham in Genesis chapter 12 not only said all the world's going to be blessed from your descendants, and that's fulfilled in Jesus, but it was also a promise of land. We're not going to read all these verses, but let me just highlight a, a couple of them to familiarize your, uh, us with the Abrahamic covenant. Here it is in Genesis chapter 12, and God's calling Abraham, and he says, I'm going to make you a great nation. I'm going to bless you. I'm going to make your name great. Uh, All peoples on the earth will be blessed through you. And then in verses uh, 5, 6, and 7, Abram took his wife Sarah, his nephew Lot, all the possessions they had accumulated, and the people they had acquired in Haran, and they set out for the land of Canaan, and they arrived there. Abram traveled through the land as far as the site of the great tree of Morah at Shechem. At that time, the Canaanites were in the land. The Lord appeared to Abram and said, To your offspring I will give this land. So he built an altar there to the Lord who had appeared to him. So God to Abraham specifically says, Here's the land of Canaan. I'm giving this land to you and your offspring." And that's repeated over and over through the Old Testament. Uh, Genesis 15, the Abrahamic covenant is is reaffirmed and confirmed. And so we come to uh, the book of Joshua. And when Joshua, as the new leader of uh, the nation of of Israel, as the book opens in Joshua chapter 1, I will give you, verse 3, every place where you set your foot as I promised Moses. Your territory will extend from the desert to Lebanon, from the great river of the Euphrates, all the Hittite country to the Mediterranean Sea in the west. And so the answer to this question is, is simple. That why does the land of Canaan belong to Israel? Because God gave it to him. He promised that to Abram. And so the land belongs to them. Well, there's a second question we want to think about this morning. 
And as you read through the book of Joshua, and as we've been studying through Joshua, and, it, and uh, it's an interesting question, and we'll spend a l- little longer on this one, and then uh, the last two will not take very long, and then we'll look at our life lessons. But question number two, why did God command Joshua to totally destroy the Canaanites? Why, why did God say, I want you to destroy every living thing that breathes? I hope that in our humanness, I hope that disturbs you a little bit, or at least make us think and question. Um, war is troubling and disturbing. Um, I, I like to watch uh, the nightly news every, every day, and uh, sometimes I don't get to catch it that day, but I record it. So I watched yesterday's uh, news at about 6 o'clock this morning, and uh, they're giving their, their report on NBC News. And, of course, they're talking about the war, Russia and Ukraine. And uh, they're going to show a clip. And the newscaster says, now I want to warn you because some of these images you're going to see may be disturbing. Because war is troubling and disturbing. And in one sense, the book of Joshua is difficult to read through. It's difficult to really think about, you know, what what is going on in in this uh, battle uh, battles that are going on for for the land. But here's the answer to that question: Why did God command Joshua to totally destroy the Canaanites? The answer is this: because of their great wickedness. It's it's because of of their 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 sin and their wickedness that God said, "I want you to totally destroy." all of the Canaanites that are in the land of Canaan. A little bit of a parallel to uh, early in the book of Genesis. And remember when, obviously, God created the world and, um, and the world's progressing and then God's looking at uh, what mankind is doing. And in Genesis chapter 6, we read, "...the Lord saw how great the wickedness of the human race had become on the earth." that every inclination of the hearts of the thoughts of the human heart was only evil all the time. The Lord regretted that he had made human beings on the earth. His heart was troubled deeply. So the Lord said, I will wipe from the face of the earth the human race that I've created, for I regret that I've made him. And then the verse says, but Noah found grace in God's eyes. So here's, here's the creation of the world. And and God's looking at the world and he's seeing the incredible wickedness. And he says, I'm going to destroy the whole world except for eight people. I'm going to show grace and mercy to Noah and his family. Well, that's similar to what's going on here in, in the, the book of, of Joshua. That God is exterminating the Canaanites because of their great sin. Let's look at it a little further. Leviticus uh, chapter 18, uh, verses 24 and 25. Now, I'm not going to read the first uh, 20-some verses of Leviticus 18. The subtitle in my Bible is Unlawful Sexual Relations. It's not a very pleasant passage to read, the first 23 verses. But then here's what God says to Israel. Do not defile yourselves in any of these ways, because this is how the nations that I'm going out going to drive out before you became defiled. So if you want to read why the Canaanites were destroyed, 
Read the first 23 verses of Leviticus 18. Horrific. Even the land was defiled, so I punished it for its sins, and the land vomited out its inhabitants. Uh, We get to Deuteronomy chapter 9, verses 4 and 5. Again, uh, talking about God giving the land of Canaan to the Israelites. After the Lord your God has driven them out before you, do not say to yourself, the Lord has brought me here to take possession of this land because of my righteousness. Basically, God's saying to Israel, you're not getting this land because you're so good. No, it is on account of the wickedness of these nations that the Lord is going to drive uh, them out before you. It is not because of your righteousness or your integrity, but on account of the wickedness of the nations. Um, One more thought here, just to kind of drive this point home. Back in the Abrahamic covenant, in Genesis chapter 15, where God's uh, reaffirming uh, the fact that he's giving the land to to the nation of Israel and to Abraham and his descendants. Uh, Here's what we read as part of that uh, passage. Um, Then the Lord said to him, Abram, know for certain that for 400 years your descendants will be strangers in a country, not their own, and they will be enslaved and mistreated there. That's the book of Exodus. This is God speaking prophetically. Abraham, your descendants for 400 years are going to be taken captive in a strange land and they're going to be slaves and they're going to be mistreated. But I will punish the nation they serve as slaves. There's the 10 plagues. And afterward, they will come out with uh, great possessions. You, however, will go to your ancestors in peace and be buried at a good old age. In the fourth generation, your descendants will come back here, back to the land, for the sin of the Amorites has not yet reached its full measure. So the Canaanites are already sinful. And God says, um, 400 years later, you're going to come back because then the sin of the Amorites will be full. And so God created or God commanded the Israelites to destroy the Canaanites because of their great wickedness. One commentator puts it this way, God chose to wait over 400 years to bring judgment upon the Amorites. The enemies of God would be displaced as God settled his chosen people on the land he promised them. Yet God's enemies did not need to remain enemies They were given ample time to turn from their wickedness, to turn from God and to be forgiven. The Amorites had a chance to repent as the Assyrians did in Nineveh in the time of Jonah. Like many other pagan nations that Israel later encountered, the Amorites stubbornly continued in their sin until judgment finally befell them in God's own timing. And as I read that, I'm afraid that the United States of America in which we live is on that same pathway, on that downward spiral. And uh, here, God finally commanded Joshua to uh, take care of and annihilate the Canaanites because of their great wickedness. All right, let's look at question number three and four. And I said, well, these are very short, and then we'll look at our our life lessons. And this is... uh, simply from the the text here of Joshua chapter 10 and 11. 
how many city king and kings did the Israelites conquer? So we actually have a, a record of that in, uh, in our passage this morning. Um, so the book of Joshua gives a detailed account of some of the battles, Jericho and Ai and a few others, but it doesn't detail all the battles that, that Israel engaged in. But we have the answer to that question in Joshua chapter 12 because it's simply an overview and a list. This, these are the, the cities, these are the kings that the nation of Israel conquered. And there's a total of 33 of them. So there are 33 cities. They each were governed individually by a separate king. It was not a united uh, kingdom. And the Israelites conquered 33 of them. And so if you look at Joshua chapter 12, verses 1 through 6, it lists two of them on the east side of the Jordan that Moses, when Moses was alive, they conquered. Then is the rest of the chapter, verses 7 through 24, lists, and it's simply a list of 31 other kings that Joshua and the nation of Israel conquered. So there's a total of 33 kings, 33 cities that the nation of Israel conquered as they came into the land of Canaan. Lastly, question number four, uh, just as we kind of take this bird's eye view of, of Joshua and this interlude, how long did the conquest of Canaan take? So how long did it take for Israel to conquer 33 cities and 33 kings? Now, if you follow the news like I do, uh, the United States of America just in the last year uh, finished up military engagement in Afghanistan. And as I listened to the commentators, I uh, discovered that that was our longest war in our history. We were engaged in Afghanistan for 20 years. It's a long time to be fighting a, a, a battle. Uh, but how long did the conquest of Canaan take? And the answer to that question is the Bible doesn't specifically say, but we can do some inference and kind of do some math and figure out um, how long. Joshua eleven eighteen says, Joshua warred, waged war against all these kings for a long time. So we got a little bit of a hint. <laughs> it, it took a long time. But uh, we can do some calculation from another passage in uh, the book of Joshua, and it's Joshua chapter 14, where Caleb's talking. And uh, Caleb says, hey, I, I, there's still a few inhabitants that need to be conquered. And he comes to Joshua and he says, hey, I want to take the hill country. I, I want to conquer the, the Anakim, the giants that are in the land. And Joshua is 85 years old. And uh, so the commentators do some calculation and some math. And uh, here's what uh, Warren Wearsby in his commentary on, on Joshua uh, writes, the long time of verse 18 is about seven years. So approximately seven years. Israel's failure at Kadesh Barnea, at which time Caleb was 40 years old, to their crossing of the Jordan River was 38 years. Caleb was 85 when the conquest was over. And so you just kind of do some math that uh, Caleb was about 78 when they crossed the Jordan River, 85 at the end of the conquest. Uh, and so uh, these, this battle took about seven years 
And then finally, we read that uh, the land had rest from the war. Well, this morning, I want to just think about three life lessons from Joshua um, chapter 11 and 12 uh, from just our four questions this morning. And uh, so let me, uh, let me share those with you. And here's life lesson number one. It's this, while God is merciful and long-suffering, He is also holy and just, and therefore sin must be punished. So while God is merciful and long-suffering, He's also holy and just, and therefore sin must be punished. And so ultimately, um, God, God judged the Amorites. He gave them 400 years to repent and turn to God, but they did not. And so ultimately, because God is, yes, loving, merciful, and long-suffering, but his character and attributes always need to be held in tension. He's loving, he's holy and just. Sin must be punished. Romans chapter 2, the Apostle Paul is laying out his doctrinal treaty that uh, treats he that uh, all of mankind is sinful. And in Romans chapter 2, uh, we read, uh, Do you show contempt for the riches of God's kindness, forbearance, and patience, not realizing that God's kindness is intended to lead you to repentance? God wants the whole world to repent. He's not willing that any should perish. Second Peter 3.9, he's long-suffering. But eventually there's a judgment day. And so verse 5 says, But because of your stubbornness and your unrepentant heart, you are storing up wrath against yourself for the day of God's wrath when His righteous judgment will be revealed. And so God is holy. God is just. God can't just sweep sin under the carpet, but sin must be punished. As we come into the Easter season, as we come into Holy Week, this is why we need to be so grateful for the gospel. The good news of the gospel. That Jesus Christ paid our sin debt on the cross. 2 Corinthians 5.21 He who knew no sin became sin for us, so that in him we might become what? The righteousness of God. The great exchange that took place. God's amazing grace. He took our place on the cross. And for those three hours when darkness filled the land and God, Jesus cried out to God, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? It's the only time in all the Bible that, that Jesus, when he prays, doesn't address God as Father. He calls him my God, my God. Why did God have to turn his back on Jesus? Because your sin and my sin and the sin of the world was placed on well, there will be justice someday, and justice will prevail because God is holy, God is just, and we just have to trust Him for that. Genesis 18, 25, uh, uh, with Sodom and Gomorrah, uh, finally we read, Will not the righteous judge of all the earth do right? And so God is a holy God, God is a just God, and there is a judgment day coming. Life lesson number two is this. 
while our ultimate victory has already been won. So our ultimate victory in Jesus has already been won. You know, as we read through the book of Joshua, it's interesting that that God spoke to Joshua uh, before the battle of Jericho. I've already delivered them into your hands. You just need to execute my plan. The same statement was made about Ai. I've already delivered them into your hands. And so as we think about our ultimate victory, uh, our ultimate victory has already been won. We are still engaged in a spiritual battle. Our ultimate victory over sin and Satan has already been won. When Jesus cried out on the cross, that one word in Aramaic, to telestai, he was saying, it is finished. He had paid the price. He paid for our salvation. Our ultimate victory has already been won. And the ultimate victory was not just the death on the cross, but the ultimate victory was that uh, the grave, the tomb was empty. Death could not hold him. The Apostle Peter in his Pentecostal sermon in Acts chapter 2 says, it was impossible for death to keep its hold on Jesus. And he conquered the grave. So I want to encourage you that our ultimate victory has already been won that um, if we put our faith and trust in Jesus, um, there's three tenses to our salvation. Justification, uh, our legal standing before God is perfect. Sanctification, that's the spiritual battle struggle that we're in. But glorification, it's a day coming when we'll be in his presence. We'll have perfect bodies, we'll be glorified. And uh, boy, we need to encourage one another with that. The victory's been won. And as Paul writes in 1 Corinthians 15, he says, Oh, death, where is your sting? Oh, grave, where is your victory? But thanks be to God who gives us the victory through the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we have hope. The grave is not the end. So our ultimate victory has already been won. But the point here in this life lesson is that we still engage in a spiritual battle. We engage in this sanctification process. Um, Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Uh, who are we battling? Our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly realms. There, there's, a, there's a battle going on. So we have three enemies that the Scripture talks about. The world, that's the world system, it's, it's anti-God. The flesh... Our sinful flesh, even though we come to know Christ, we still have a sin nature. Paul writes about it in Romans 7. He says, the things I want to do, I don't do. And the things that I don't want to do, I end up doing. Oh, wretched man am I. Who will deliver me from this? And Paul talks about his struggle of living the Christian life. But the third enemy is uh, is Satan. So it's the world, the flesh, and the devil. And That's what the Apostle Paul is addressing in in Ephesians chapter 6, verse 12. Ultimately, our battles are spiritual battles. And our struggle is against uh, not flesh and blood, but against uh, the rulers, the authorities of this dark world. So that brings us to life lesson number three. Our last one would be this. In this battle that we face, God has given us the resources we need 
to have victory over sin in our life. So God hasn't left us alone in this struggle and said, go figure it out. But in our spiritual battle, our spiritual struggle, God's given us some resources to help us. And it's found in Ephesians chapter 6. And I'm sure one of the most familiar passages in in all the Bible. Uh, Paul writing from prison, Be strong in the Lord and in His mighty power. Put on what? The full armor of God. So that you can take your stand against the devil's schemes. The old King James talks about the wiles of the devil. It's the Greek word methodia. The methods of Satan. And so uh, he keeps referring to this word standing our ground. It's found in verse 11, stand against the devil's schemes. Verse 13, put on the whole armor of God so that when the day of evil comes, and I would suggest to you the day of evil is here. It is now. It is 2022. When the day of evil comes, you may be able to stand your ground And after everything you have done to stand, verse 14, stand firm then. And then the Apostle Paul lists seven resources God's given us that we're to engage with to fight our spiritual struggles. This this passage is a whole series of sermons in itself, so I'm just going to briefly briefly mention them. Seven pieces of armor that God has given us The Apostle Paul says, stand firm then with the belt of truth buckled around your waist. And so what's the the first resource God has given us in the spiritual battle against Satan? Remember who Satan is? The father of lies. John 8, 44. Every time he opens his mouth, he's lying. And so we have to battle lies with truth. That's what Jesus did in Matthew 4, the temptation for 40 days in the wilderness. Satan tempted him three times. How did Jesus respond? It is written, book of Deuteronomy, he quoted. And so our first resource uh, is truth. Truth. Boy, is that ever uh, important today. Uh, Those that are much smarter than I define our culture as we're living in a post-truth culture. Post-truth culture. And everybody wants to define their own truth. And we worship at tolerance and relativism. Very few people believe in absolute truth, that which is true for all times. And so we're, we're in a battle for truth today. And we have the truth. Jesus said, thy word is truth, John 17, 17. I watched just a little bit of the Senate Judiciary Supreme Court hearings um, questioning our uh, newest nominee, Judge Katani Brown-Jackson. Those are two incredibly long days of hearings. (laughs) I don't know why they don't break it down to three days, but they do about two 12-hour days. And so um, most of America didn't see this. The news, some of the news media uh, picked up on it. But Marsha Blackburn, who is a senator from Tennessee, was questioning the Supreme Court nominee um, about some terms and some words. And here's what she asked her, quote, Marsha Blackburn, can, to 
the judge, can you provide a definition of the word woman? Can you provide a definition of the word woman? Here was her answer. She asked a rhetorical question. Can I provide a definition? No, I can't. Sad day in America when we can't define what a, a, a woman. So we live in this post-truth culture, and our first resource is the truth of God's Word. Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No man comes to the Father but by me. Well, we're just going to run through the rest of these, and you can uh, uh, look at this passage and do a little further study. But secondly, um, not only the belt of truth, but the breastplate of righteousness, that's our position, our, our standing before God. As we mentioned, Second Corinthians 5.21, the righteousness of Christ has been imputed to our account. And Satan likes to bring up uh, guilt, bring up the past. And I heard somebody say, um, when Satan tries to bring up your past, you just remind him of his future. He's a defeated foe. And we stand in the righteousness of Christ um, as our, our breastplate. And then the gospel of peace, uh, Romans 5.1. Uh, Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God. We've made our peace treaty with God through the blood of Jesus. Therefore, we can stand firm and assured in that. We can also enjoy the peace of God that's promised in Philippians 4, 6, and 7. And then it talks about the shield of faith. What is faith? Taking God at his word and acting on it. That's the key to the book of Joshua. Why were they able to conquer the land 40 years after they did not conquer the land? Because Joshua and the Israelites decided to believe God's promise and what? Act on it. And that's what faith is. We are saved by faith, but we also are to live by faith. Taking God at his word and acting on it. Then we have the helmet of salvation that, that's mentioned, um, the assurance of our salvation. Romans chapter 8, what shall separate us? Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Uh, and then Paul goes through this long list and he says, nothing can separate us from Christ's love. We are secure in him. Number six, the sword of the Spirit. Uh, he goes on to, to talk about the sword of the Spirit. Uh, in addition to all this, take up the shield of the faith which you, with which you can extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one. Uh, verse 17, the, take up the helmet of salvation and the sword of the Spirit. And then he tells us what that is, which is the Word of God. So again, he goes back to what's the resource God has given us? It is God's Word. Uh, the Word of God. Hebrews 4.12 talks about the, the power of it is found in the Word of God. The author of Hebrews writes, The Word of God is alive and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. It penetrates even to the dividing soul and spirit, joints and marrow. It judges the thoughts and attitudes of the heart. And then um, there's another resource that God has given us, and this is how Paul wraps up this passage. Not only the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God, but then verse 18 and pray in the Spirit on all occasions with all kinds of prayers and requests. With this in mind, keep alert and always keep on praying for all of God's people. 
And so what's another resource we have? Probably our most underutilized one. Paul says pray because there's power in prayer. And I want you to pray. And so God has given us the resources to fight Satan's methodology. I like to alliterate and I think about how does Satan work? Well, he gets us to doubt, doesn't he? That was Genesis chapter 3 when he came to, to Eve and he began to make Eve doubt God's word. Has God really said? And Satan loves to, to have us to doubt, to doubt our salvation, to doubt whether we're forgiven, to doubt whether we're secure in him, to doubt whether even he loves us. And so Satan casts doubt. He likes to work through discouragement. You know, um, I like to say, I don't believe discouragement is a sin. I think we all get discouraged. God realizes we're human. But God doesn't want us to stay there, does he? Uh, God wants us to um, embrace his promises and his word and his people and uh, not live in, in discouragement. How about division? Oh, Satan loves division, doesn't he? He'll take anything to, to try to divide a marriage, to divide uh, close friendships, to divide Christians over masks or vaccinations or anything like that. He'll, he'll use anything to try to divide. He uses deceit. He denies God's truth. And God has given us resources to conquer. I don't know if we have this. Is this video able, able to be shown? Okay. Um, I think we've got time for it. So um, this is, uh, is Abdu Murray, and he's talking about our post-truth culture. I wanted to show it a little earlier. I wasn't sure we had it, but it's about three minutes long, and then we'll, we'll wrap up. Apologetics seeks to give credible answers to curious questions. Welcome to the One Minute Apologist. My name is Bobby Conway, and we are actually down here at RZIM getting some of the speakers. And Abdu Murray, you are one of the itinerant speakers for the national speaking team, overseeing the team as well, right? I am, North American director, yeah. Yeah, so, well, we're glad to have you on the program. We thank you for your writings and your work and your ministry. Uh, I have a question for you. Would you say that we are in a post-truth culture? I think the answer is a resounding yes to that, actually. And I think that it's very different than a postmodern culture. Postmodernism rejected the idea of objective truth altogether. And, of course, that's self-defeating, as you well know. You know, if someone says there's no such thing as truth, you simply ask them, is that statement true? And it all falls apart. Post-truth is different. Post-truth doesn't reject truth's existence. It just subordinates it to feelings and preferences. So a post-truth person would say, yeah, there's objective truth. But if it conflicts with my preferences, then I don't care. My preferences matter more. So something is post-truth if it elevates feelings and preferences above truth and facts. And I think what you're seeing today, whether it's in the realm of politics, whether it's in the realm of sexuality, whether it's in the realm of religion, is a post-truth culture that elevates those preferences to the point where if I don't... Uh, affirm your preferences, now I'm labeled hateful things like bigot or fascist or whatever it might be. And on all sides, we're doing this, on all sides, because we're elevating our agendas above what's true, actually. I think the way to actually combat that and to come back at this post-truth culture is forming solid argument, but also showing people what the consequences of 
living in a post-truth culture actually are. And the consequences are we lose our sense of reason, we lose our sense of accountability because our preferences matter more than anything else, and we lose our sense of human value. How is that the case? Well, think about it. Um, we're no longer talking about freedom in this country. We use the word freedom. What we really mean is autonomy. And autonomy comes from two Greek words, autos meaning self, namos meaning law. So we don't want to be free. We want to be laws unto ourselves. Freedom has boundaries, and that boundary is truth. When you're autonomous, you are a law unto yourself. Here's the problem. If my preferences matter more than truth, and someone else's preferences matter more than truth, and I'm a law unto myself, and that person's a law unto themselves, when my preferences clash with their preferences, truth won't be the deciding factor because truth's on the bottom shelf. It won't be truth. It'll be power. And that is a recipe for chaos where we lose reason, accountability, and a sense of human value. And that's what happens when truth is gone. We become enslaved to our autonomy, which is why Jesus so remarkably says in John chapter 8, you will know the truth and this truth will set you free. Jesus links truth and freedom. Post-truth says autonomy leads to freedom. Jesus says it's truth that leads to freedom. I want to encourage you to be a part of our team at the One Minute Apologist, where you'll get exclusive access. All right. You can follow up on that later. I, I was going to try to summarize that, and I finally decided he's much more eloquent than I am. And uh, Abdul Murray uh, was, grew up in um, uh, Fallen Islam, and he's from the Detroit area. And God remarkably saved him, and uh, he's a, a great apologist for the faith today. And uh, so God's using him in a, in a great, great way. Well, that kind of summarizes the, the, the world in which we live. And uh, I guess I just want to drive home uh, the resources God has given us. And uh, so we want to in- engage with those as we fight uh, our spiritual battles. And uh, boy, how we need to encourage, encourage one another.